Hi, welcome to Boom It's on the Blockchain. Uh, my name is uh, Alistair Caithness, and today we've got a special guest. She's in the most hundred most powerful women in blockchain across the world. It is Talisha Shine. Hello. Hi, Talisha. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Talisha. Good. So I just think to kick things off, uh, Talisha, if you want to give everyone a bit of background about yourself. Certainly. I am Talisha Shine. I am a founding member of the group called Black Blockchain Consultants, and I'm also a certified blockchain expert from uh, the Government Blockchain Association. And I've been in this space for about four and a half years at this point, which seems so crazy to even say that because it feels much longer, but it's been a great ride thus far. Okay, perfect. So let's just go back in time then, Talisha. So what were you actually, you know, where you grew up, I, I was reading some of your profile, you grew up in Pittsburgh, so you were writing articles about Pittsburgh itself. So can you tell everyone a little bit about Pittsburgh growing up and how you actually went down this route? Yes, uh, definitely born and raised in the great old steel town, and it was wonderful. I am a Gen Xer, so I have lived through all of our Super Bowl glories, which is always wonderful. I'm a big Steeler fan, so that just goes without saying. But it was very interesting growing up in a very much, uh, you know, a different time and space because at that time, uh, the steel mills were very popular when I grew up. So I grew up in that time when it was a booming economy. And I also got to see a transition from, you know, from that glory days to really being a desolate place where technology truly changed how we operated as a, as a community and as a city at whole. So, so t talking about for people who aren't aware of this, because we and we've got viewers out with the US who watch the podcast as well, just explain to them what happened in Pittsburgh. Because I knew it was a big steel town, you know, and a lot of steel's gone out from, you know, it's manufactured in China now and brought in rather than manufactured yeah. in America. But how did that affect a place like Pittsburgh, which was just essentially the whole city was based on the steel industry? Yes, every city had its own steel mill. So I grew up in McKeesport, Pennsylvania, which sits on two rivers and on each side of the river there was a steel mill so we had six miles worth of mills <laughs> kind of lined up and everybody i would say that was one of those things where every male that was in the town that was the job the coveted job to have it was the u.s steel boom so we were producing massive amounts of steel um going through you know for everywhere and we were importing and exporting that as our own thing coming from Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh steel was a little bit different. <laughs> and that was our whole livelihoods. Everybody worked there. Um, and one day they didn't. So in one day they laid off 3000 individuals and then the next week it was 7,000. And it literally took a very strong toll on the city because it was the whole infrastructure. So, so um, what's, the sort, what's the population of Pittsburgh then? At the time we had over like a, probably about maybe 800,000 people. Um, it was, it's a large city, a, a very large city um, in its own right. Uh, but it was definitely, like I said, that one major industry and having that, that was one of those kind of things where we were devoted to that particular industry exclusively. So that transition was very hard because once you don't know what else, what else to do, you're just kind of like, well, what do we do now? And we had a strong impetus, like everybody exited the city in 82 and 83. We, we literally lost half of our population at that time. So the so population was down to like 400,000 then? Yeah, it was like amazing. I went, to, I went to school one day and had 23 kids in my class. And then the next day I had seven. <laughs> So that's how quickly everything changed. And it was just, it was really devastating from a standpoint of seeing us thrive so much 
to just being desolate. Like it became almost a ghost town. It was so many people exiting rows and rows of houses being emptied. Um, we even were in the Guinness Book of World Record for uh, the place that McDonald's went out of business due to bankruptcy in 82, because <laughs> it never goes out of, out of business for that purpose, but there were no one there. So it was a very um, interesting transition. And I always thought about that even as a youngster, because I was right in my tween area and seeing that technology was the thing that changed that. We were fine, we were doing everything the same way that we'd always done it. And then somebody bought in a piece of technology and it changed how we did everything in a split second. So, so what was the technology they brought in? Well, at that time, that's when China was doing that, the just-in-time inventory, making it cheaper and faster. And they were killing us, like just every part of that automation process from making steel better and, and easier, I would say. It wasn't so much as better, but they that technology that they had in the automation process was just not something that we were keeping up with or even kind of even doing in our own mills at the time. And that truly was like the, the first thing. You can see how technology, while it, it, it helps in certain instances, it definitely has a pro and a con to it. It's not just always an upside to the technology being introduced into the com into the community. Yeah, and, and I know for a lot of people out there, I think with CO2 emissions, but a lot of the Chinese CO2 emissions is the manufacturing of steel for the US market space. Exactly. You know, so that's still actually happening out there. So, you know, we're all in this green revolution that's happening right now across America. But last year, uh, China opened more coal plants than the rest of the world closed down, 180 coal plants, you know. So it's a huge amount there. And so much of that is to, towards manufacturing. So people need to realize that, you know, this is a global problem when they talk about CO2 emissions. Yes. And, you know, a place like Pittsburgh is devastated because of what's happened. But, you know, we're trying to become green here, but China's opening coal plants to manufacture steel, which won't even be as good a quality as Pittsburgh. And then to ship it, we've also got to get CO2 emissions to ship it all the way back into the U.S. market. Mm -hmm. So when President Biden's talking about this $2.2 trillion to basically kick things off after COVID, they've got to realize a huge chunk of that is the manufacturing of steel in China. Mm -hmm. And these are manufacturing steel in China for coal plants they're having to open to manufacture this steel. So people have to realize that it's just not some of these things whereby, oh, in America, if we go green, the rest of the world's going to be fine. Correct. You've got to realize that, you know, what happened in Pittsburgh, even though it's like, 40 years later, it still has a spin-off effect coming in. And as people start to focus on CO2 emissions, it's like, and then you can't just blame China because it's like, oh, well, China's creating all the CO2 emissions compared to everyone else, but they're making the product that we're using here. It's a an effect. And I think people forget that. Like you can't just have it, you know, like, oh, we're just going to do away with it. And what do you do after that? And I think that's the kind of conversations that, you know, we've had, in, in little spurts, but not really having that long and gated from supply chain conversations of what does that mean? How does that work? Yes, you want to implement something new, but where does it where does it cause that that break in the chain? And how do how do we fix that before we even tackle the first problem? So there's a lot of considerations, but 
that's that's always like I said, our town, you know, I watched it, I lived through it, and I can see like yep, it was great when it was wonderful. And then, you know, there were so many other concerns that happened. And now, you know, again, just we reinvented ourselves as a newer city with, you know, medical, we're a medical hub. And again, there's a lot of technology now going on with, you know, Amazon, Google, uh, Duolingo, always in Pittsburgh. So there it, it changed, but it took it a little bit to get to that point. Right. So if you're thinking about so let's you start speaking about the new industry. So so how does this affect the people in Pittsburgh back then who were in the steel industry? And it's obviously this, oh, we can just retrain and get another job. You know, people yeah. 40 years ago, they aren't going to be working right now in terms of a lot of them will just be retired anyway. But how does the industry sector look now and what's the population size and, you know, essentially going forward for a place like Pittsburgh? You know, what's it looking like? Yeah, well, I think, again, they've made that transition very nicely in the like the late 90s, early 2000s with being the, the medical hub. And that has definitely you know spawned a lot of jobs. But again, that was a lot of retraining from just back in the 80s <laughs> to going into the 2000s. That was a 20 year lull where everyone had to figure out what they were going to do if they were going to remain there. And still, it is an industrial town. That's just the way that it's a nature is set up. So it is definitely growing. Mm -hmm. With the Googles and the Amazons moving there, that was something that happened. But again, it changes the trajectory of how the city is built. Again, the individuals are being priced out of their homes because of the technology centers that are just moving in there and taking over neighborhoods that have been there for a very long time and individuals who've lived there for forever, for their whole entire lives. So that's always a, a very interesting, you know, when you bring something to a space, but you're not really appreciating the space that was already there. Okay, so so let, so now we've talked about Pittsburgh. Let's talk about your career. So how did you know this has obviously been a pivotal moment? It's the same with everyone. There's always some reason why you go down a certain path, and <laughs> it's obviously the change in Pittsburgh itself. So if so, if you want to give a bit about you know your background from how you started to get into tech and where it took off from growing up in Pittsburgh. Well, I went to Penn State University was my first choice because <laughs> um, it was right across the street from my high school. But at that point, uh, engineering that again, I'm early, I'm almost 50 years old. So at the time, computer science wasn't really available, but engineering was high in demand at that point. And as a science math person, that was something that truly intrigued me. I love biology, I love chemistry and calculus. Those were the things that really just kind of strong, uh, you know, got me going. And I just went to school for chemical and mechanical engineering. But you know, that's a that's a lot of going on <laughs> at the same time. You never double major, don't ever double major in engineering. But it was absolutely a fabulous way to understand some of the things. And I think once you're an engineer, there's a logic that goes on in your mind. And that process, no matter what, kind of follows you into any other career. So uh, you know, I went into computer science much later in my life and then subsequently, you know, end up with a computer science degree and an MBA. But I think those are those kind of things. It's that engineering background that I always say that I use almost every single day of my life because it's just what has to, you know, it's that logical processing. It lends itself to what what possible things can happen even in this new technology space because we have, you know, there are some parameters that we have to work for even when it's wide open. We still have to kind of make it make it viable and make it for real <laughs> and bring it into this kind of dimension. And how did you get into the blockchain? 
it was like at the end of 2016 to 2017, that really was an interesting spot because again, that blockchain was not the, the topic. It was Bitcoin. Everybody wanted to talk about Bitcoin. And I was like, it's great. That's a, a great application. But again, I'm a very strong engineering person. I need to know what it, where it comes from. So I needed to understand that infrastructure. And that's what led me to finding more information about blockchain. And I kind of just was searching all around. There wasn't a whole lot. Like I said, that the, the cryptocurrency really had taken its hold. But it was only then that I found individuals who, too, were like, yeah, it sounded cool, but we want to know what else there is. And we kind of got together. And that was the formulation of the Black Blockchain Consultants, where we just kind of got together to talk about blockchain as the infrastructure, what were the capabilities of it beyond just the cryptocurrency space? So for, you know, I, I've been in the, the show, the Black Blockchain Consultants. I actually, was, I was on the show, I was reading it last night. And have, have you finished it? Is, is well, we, just the, that. We, uh, we have a free Discord group. So it's just, you know, there's a lot going on in the space. Everybody's doing their own thing. So we just kind of take a break for a moment. <laughs> all right. So it's not the last one of all time. It's just a break. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> just maybe it's titled wrong. So... You know, I've been on there. So explain how the what the you know the concept of the Black Blockchain Consultants is, and you know what are you trying to do, and what's the mission of the the organization? Yeah, our mission was truly to educate individuals. I think again, this was one of those things coming from an industrial kind of place. Black people are always left behind. We kind of just are always in that like, yeah, we know that there's technology, but we don't always participate in it in its full functionality. And we wanted to change that. We knew that this wealth transfer was about to happen with you know this introduction of this technology, and we wanted to ensure that everybody could participate fully. And it starts with education. It's like, how? And that was the, the biggest reason we had to constantly have that educational portion to say, this is what this is. And this is how it impacts your life. Because again, this is about job loss and about, you know, dealing with certain things. Like most of us are not good with the cryptocurrency, how to onboard some of the technologies that it takes just to get, you know, into this space is kind of an inhibitor. And we wanted to at least do our part to educate those who really wanted to understand more and to fully take participation. It, it's about opportunity as well you know it's just like what's happened over the years that the you know the african-american black communities missed out on you spoke about it briefly in terms of technology and you know in a way the internet's come along and you know it, it's changed you spoke about pittsburgh before you know um how much you know what's the percentage of the black community in pittsburgh at that time and what happened to them in terms of job losses so people can sort of understand how this actually changes you know yeah even though we're a small portion of the population across the united states we are always kind of the, the individuals who suffer the most when those kind of industries go down because that was a, a manual labor job and there was probably 75 to 80% were you know minority individuals so we had latinos in our community and black individuals as well as everybody else but like i said those jobs that were lost were primarily ours and again trying to reskill when that's all that you've done for quite some time. And there's a history of that. It's like, I can say my grandfather, all my uncles and my father worked in a mill. And that became very difficult to try to, that's a hurdle. And again, if you don't have any other skill sets and that there's not available in your community, again, that wasn't something that, you know, we're in the eighties, we're not talking about everybody had a PC. No one even knew what that was. So trying to get to that point, um, even to be able to integrate something new was very difficult. And we're seeing that now too. We're still in these kind of places where we don't have access to even regular internet. 
we saw it 2020 that how hard it was for certain people to even get internet access when some of us just think that it's just a, a you know you flip on a light you get your lights and now you just have internet well there was a whole lot of people who don't and still don't have that advantage and that becomes also a disnomer because you can't participate in opportunities if you don't even have the requisite things to to onboard yourself to it right so so that was part of it but you're, you've also got is it the 10k project that's associated with the black blockchain consultants. Can you give a bit of background how that's different and what's how that actually works? Well, that is again kind of an offset of that. Again, when you're trying to make a business, so we went from being you know employed to actually being our own owners of our companies, but we are also again once again sadly um, underfunded. So the the 0.1% of us that get the funding for our businesses was just it's not tenable for us, and a large portion of our businesses actually went under during the pandemic time. So we lost about you know 80% of our businesses that are never going to return. And the funding is always the issue when you don't have the requisite, again, things to build your business and you're just kind of working to make it work. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to address that by simply having a community to support them. So using our own communities to pump into these uh, founders to ensure that they at least have some way to get through that friend and family round that most uh, VCs want to see you going through that will actually spawn our community and also give back to us. So there was a symbiotic relationship, having the investment aspects of, you know, learning how to invest in startup companies, as well as helping the founders. So we wanted to make sure that they had all the resources to include technology, but also that funding that was critically necessary for their success. So in going forward, how is this going to operate then? At this point, the 10K is its own entity as it, <laughs> it grew into its own thing. I always say we've made things that have taken on a life of their own. And the 10K is, again, running well up and running and doing you know, pitch competitions and those kind of things with regard. The Black Blockchain Consultants is still the educational hub where people come to understand uh, get the information that they want to and and really connect and network within the community to see, you know, where they fit in, because this is the reskilling is a very big part of this, too. They want to know, how do I take all these skills that I've had for the last 10, 15 years? And now I got to do something else to make sure that I'm viable for the next. And that's what we we still, you know, are dedicated to that. I'm just learning about the history of the country really coming here. You know, we, we did a, a subject called Modern Studies back in scotland so it was uh, and that was sort of newer history and then we covered sort of american history there as well so we covered a bit about civil rights we covered a bit about you know martin luther king and what he did and then jfk but it was really from that era onwards but it's only actually when you come to america out with you really start to understand what the African-American black communities faced. What I've noticed when I started to research it was ownership of asset. Mm -hmm. It's like, so the wealth in America, for the people who don't know out there, is up until probably the 1930s, 1940s, until the Federation of Housing Association was created, only the uber wealthy could actually own property. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the old loans used to be, used to be able to have to put down, I think about 80% up front, and you could take a 20% loan over five years. So unless you were very wealthy, it didn't matter which color you were, it was just like, it was very much kept to the super wealthy. The same happened back in the UK and, and nearly all countries, you know what I mean? That was it. The landowners were the very rich, the aristocracy that owned that. So when the Federation Housing Association, this is what I've learned, they came along in the 30s and 40s, you know, and specifically after post-World War II, they created a new system whereby 
people could start to get 80% loans on their property over a 30-year period. So what they were able to do was they can actually borrow money now, like the way we borrow money air, so people can come in and get loans from that. But the saddest thing that I saw with that was the African-American communities were excluded from being access to the, these loans, basically. Now, if you think you're middle-class American, middle-class white American right now, you know, unless you've come from the very uber-wealthy, the reason you've got wealth, the reason you've gone to education is essentially through property ownership of your grandfather, grandmother, and it's been passed down from generation. And if you're looking at the type of loans, and this is research I've been doing, the type of loans that were given out, we're talking about like, back at that time. But the property's value now is up to like half a million dollars. And during that period, it's the the wealth in the property and owning the asset that's actually allowed the future generations to buy their own property because they've managed to take equity out and put it down as the uh, down payment. And then also it's allowed them to access education because this is where the money's come from. So if you're looking back 50, 60 years ago, very few people went to universities. Mm -hmm. And the only way they started to afford to go to universities is because they became middle class through property ownership and through property ownership, this allowed them to actually take money out and pay for their kids to go to university and get them educated there as well. But if you actually look, the African-American community wasn't even allowed to access these loans. You know, if people talk about, you know, institutional racism in banking, you know, my dad's a bank manager and he's and he's like old school bank manager. You know what I mean? So if you speak to my dad, he's a he's great business guy, old school bank manager. This is the way it works. But for coming from something like this and to see how this was set up in this country, it was, it's basically unbelievable, really. I don't think it was, I think JFK changed the rule and that was not until like in the 1960s, I think in 1968, mm-hmm. that he actually changed the rule that African American people could even access. That didn't even actually allow you to access the loans themselves. What that did, it basically meant the rules where you weren't actually stopped from getting it. But within some of the communities where people went from inner cities and moved into suburbs, they had to sign loan documents with conditions that you weren't going to sell your house to an African American person. Yeah, redlining. Very good. Yeah, I get redlining. Yeah. If you want to give a bit of explanation about that as well, because I think this is important for people to do, because I want to speak about asset ownership and tokenization and why that comes in. But mm-hmm. that's my understanding. If you want to, you know, you know more about this, if you want to speak a bit about that as well, Talisha. Well, we were, again, regulated to live in certain areas. And that was to, again, this is specifically World War II. We're talking about coming home and the GIs having the ability to take advantage of, you know, land ownership. And again, most of us who were, you know, served, I know my, my family is a military family and have all served and were, weren't allowed to buy homes. And so you had to constantly rent and you weren't allowed to live in certain areas. And that's where, again, that the inner city districts were started to be zoned for where you could live as an African-American and you weren't allowed and permitted to live in the suburbs. And it's all interesting how, again, we've seen the gentrification kind of happening where people want to move back into the city, but now they don't want to still live 
within a black community. And this continues to go on our predatory loans. Like I said, when we were able to access the loans, the percentage in interest rates were astronomical. No one else had those. And we still see some of those remnants even today. Our houses are appraised at a, a, at a lower rate. Um, everything about the system is really not centric for us to have the, the, the equity and to grow our wealth as, as anybody else. So everybody say, oh, you have the ability to do exactly what we do. Well, we're starting with like a thousand steps behind and it's not the same. So even in the educational aspect, going to school, yes, we, before we weren't even allowed to go to institutions, we created our own institutions and then we weren't allowed to have loans to take out for that. But even now our loan access is still m much higher than anyone else's. So we pay almost three to four percent more for our student loans than any other community does. So there's always these things that, like I said, we're trying to make equity is really what it is. It's not, well, we're not striving for equality because that's not something that's even viable at this point. But we just need an equitable system. And I do think that's where this technology starts to allow that to actually manifest. Yeah, I read an article. It was a guy who was an investment banker. He was African-American. He had a um, credit score of like 800, which I'd love to have a credit score of 800. You know? But even then, he went in and he basically did this research. He had like great paying job, super high credit. And he went to your traditional banks. This was like last year and it was in the New Yorker. And he basically was getting interest rates of like four and a half percent. You know, and whereby, the, and then they had someone else going into the same thing with the less scores, and they were getting interest rates of three percent. And this is somebody who's like working in an invest, basically an investment banker, high paid salary, you know, highly educated, access to that, but you're getting a one and a half percent, and that's from just banks. You know, it's just like, and that's like, and they're not breaking the rules. This is like the rules are set up. It's just it, it's it's basically unbelievable, you know. And I know with the Black Lives Matter movement and everyone else are speaking about, but we're only speaking about essentially banking rates, you know. And as you said, you couldn't even get access to this uh, uh, opportunity to own your own property anyway, unless it was with these sort of horrible buyback type mortgages, whereby if you miss one payment, you lose your house. You know, right. and then you're paying like super high rates. You can't get in any places. It's really just an unbelievable, and coming from Scotland and you're reading this stuff, it's just like, it's unbelievable for people back in the UK to think something like this would go on there. Now, obviously they've got their own problems with what's happened in history. You know, it's Britain's basically invaded 93% of the world. So, you know, <laughs> so, yeah, so basically we're, we're the cause of most problems back in the day, you know, yeah. Buckingham Palace, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to make it wasn't but their so fault. We, we understand, I think this is the globalization really helps people to understand that you know, what we face is something that, again, there's some residual aspects to this. But as a person who is born and raised here, understanding and coming from the family that I come from. So I understand how just how disparate our treatment has been over the time for crime. And that's, again, the stories that go on. Like I said, I have military personnel, individuals who were literally born as slaves and that saw desegregation happen. So there's a lot that goes on. But you, you can see how that disenfranchisement really is our legacy. That becomes the thing we hand down instead of, you know, wealth. And I think people forget that, like, oh, wealth is passed down. But yes, poverty also is passed down. And that's a hard thing to escape. 
and you're making all them the moves that you can. I know, like I said, my parents weren't educated formally than all of my siblings and myself are, but that, that also has a, a cost to it. So we have to put ourselves into debt because again, no one gave us the ability to go to college. We had to work our way through that. And that also inhibits that I'm about to send my child who's 18 to college. And it's still that same, like, Ooh, we got to figure out how to pay for that. And these are the kind of things that really, you know, kind of the trajectory of your life is changed by the opportunities you have at the very early stages. It's hard to, again, catch up and you already know that you're behind. So you have to really be very cognizant of the choices you make. And I think that's where this new technology really does kind of level set. We don't get this chance often. And that's what we try to tell our community that this is a once in a lifetime chance to make a very distinct change. Tokenization of assets, that digitization of things that we can now own when we're typically only consumers in this country, this is a really a strong change that has a, a, a impact that we would not see in our lifetime if we don't capture it now. Yeah, and, and then it comes down to educations all the time. You know, to, to miss out on education opportunities just misses you out and, you know, mm -hmm. jobs coming up there as well. And it, that's the good thing with the internet and, you know, becomes more of a level playing field. Yeah, everybody can't afford to go to Harvard or MIT in these places, but, you know, you watch guys like Elon Musk and that, and he comes out, MBAs are overrated. <laughs> I, know, I don't know. You can do all this stuff online, but he's, he's right with a lot of that thing. I think in Scotland we have a free education system up until your first degree and anybody there can go there and you can get you know up to your first if you want to go a second degree you want to go to you know cambridge oxford all the top universities yeah there's costs going forward but that first degree is still there and that's something that we just basically grew up with and then you come here whereby you know, if you're wanting to do something that's not a doctor or a lawyer or essentially an engineer, you're going down a path whereby if you're coming out of university $200,000 in debt, you know, it's, it's a lot of debt to carry. It's like, how do you go forward? And then suddenly you want to start buying a house or things like that as well. It's like, that becomes difficult as well because they say, well, what debt have you got? Oh, I've got 200,000 from education. Yeah. You know, like, just, I have a great degree. And you're like, yeah, that doesn't matter. And that becomes, like I said, it's a cyclical thing. And we see it all the time. Just, you, you feel like it, there's no way around it. You have to feel like you have to be educated in a certain manner in order to, be, to get the job that is going to be able to pay you to just get a house. And we're seeing that across the board. Like I said, the millennials, my, my siblings, are millennials and they're they're having that same difficulty it's like okay i spent all this time trying to get myself educated get a good job and i still can't afford a house <laughs> it's like that becomes a really strong aspect and my parents are homeowners um but like i said that's something that all of all of my siblings and i are not um and my sister just became one recently and that becomes the issue is like it takes much longer to do what they could do easier again with the stability of those kind of jobs but we don't have that we don't have that you know a, a good paying you stay in the mill for 25 years get a pension and retire that's not going to happen and we understood you know, all of that coming through. So we're really making those kind of decisions of how to how to maneuver. But again, you have to look at opportunity, that opportunity costs, and you have to have that ability to pay it when the opportunity is presented to you and instead of letting it pass you by. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll take this opportunity to like, talk about my uh, monetary policy <laughs> that I always take any opportunity to talk about there as well. So, so to give a bit of background and what I'm doing is, you know, we're tokenizing um, 
energy assets on the blockchain. So for people out there to get a bit of, you know, if they've followed our podcast, etc., what we're doing is taking the energy asset, we're putting it into its own token, and the, this allows people to actually acquire interest in an energy asset. And really is, you know, we look at it, we call it democratization of ownership. So up until now, only the uber wealthy pension funds, um, you know, big all, uh, energy operators could actually own part of an, an energy project. You know, if we tokenize a wind farm and this goes on to an ATS and we can create minimum investments of, say, $1,000, suddenly it opens up the opportunity for non-accredited eventually to start buying into these tokens and allows this ability. Now, we're doing this for a reason whereby we're trying to create liquidity in the market where money's locked into the life cycle. That's what tokenization essentially allows us to do. But, uh, you know, I ended up uh, working with the Libertarian Party. I'm the blockchain policy advisor. I was on the Kokesh 2020 team. You know, he came third running for the Libertarian president, but or the presidential candidate. But, you know, part of my uh, remit was to develop this AmeriCoin idea. Now, the, the AmeriCoin idea is whereby um, rather than replace the federal government, you know, and this is uh, part of the, like, the Libertarian Party will be switching off right now. Well, that's not our policy, <laughs> but it's a step too far. You know, you can't just go from A to B. But really what it is is coming back to someone like Martin Luther King who's a hero of mine and obviously did everything with civil rights, but at the end of his career, it was all about poverty uh, alleviation. You know, that's what it was. And it, that was across all races and things like that. And if people read about what he talked about, so many of his interviews, if you can read about that as well, really, really interesting than what he saw. And so it's not just basically happening with one race. It's like it's happening across the board with people who are actually poor. So there'll be poor white people there. Well, I had to go, go up with food stamps and all the problems you're talking about there. That's across every single race sector. Yeah. It just happens to the African-American community more. And now what's happening with COVID is the, the, the difference between rich and poor, everybody is just going to go wider and wider and wider. You know, that's what's actually going to happen. And the saddest bit is, you know, we're just trying to get through this pandemic, but off the back of it, you know, your big uh, corporations like, you know, Amazon, Walmart, Costco, all these guys, you know, no matter what they say, they've done fantastically well out of COVID yeah. you know? yeah. <laughs> because they've been allowed to open. Billionaires. I think that's the whole point from a pandemic. There have been a surge of billionaires coming out of this. And that shows you that we have a, the inequity has happened across the board. And again, we're not trying to, you know, reinvent the system. It's just trying to, you know, really level set because you can't have those two extreme, that polarization is not a healthy climate for anything to go on. And so once you recognize that, you're like, okay, yeah, it's great that you could be a billionaire, but at the same time, what does that mean? If we can't get it closer, um, it, it really does have a very ill effect on the world. And again, we are living in a global economy. So this is going to impact, you know, what happens in the US is definitely going to trickle out into the world. We're not just un unto ourselves. And I think that's what we're seeing specifically now. And the pandemic just kind of exasperated that and put a, st a strong light on showing that everybody's having some similar issues. I've got contacts out in Nigeria because they, they want to make this Nigeria oil tokens. I've been speaking to them. So the, the 90 million Nigerians live below their poverty line, which is currently $376 a year. 
You know, it's absolutely incredible, but you've got these billionaires coming out from there as well. The richest uh, black woman in the world is a billionaire from Nigeria. So you've seen that, but again, it's just like the poverty line is just going like that, and it just doesn't matter. The poor is just going to get poorer. Mm -hmm. So when I came along to develop the MetaCoin idea, it was essentially what does blockchain and tokenization can do? So what we can do is the model that we've created in terms of tokenizing energy assets can actually be applied to tokenization of federal assets. Mm -hmm. So what you can do is you can take all the federal assets in America, and this is all the land, all the steel, all the water rights, all the oil, all the gold, everything there, which is over 50% in the land. According to Wikipedia, this the asset value of America is $271 trillion. So you think the federal debt, you know, it's like so much bigger than the federal deficit. So this doesn't change how government operates. So I'm not saying let's get rid of government. I'm just saying that the assets out there and the original constitution said, you know, the land belongs to the people, not the government or the king. And the reason they wrote the king was King George of England at the time. So that was basically this land belongs to you. But up until now, before the blockchain, there's never been a technology that can allow people to have fractionalized ownership of assets. Mm -hmm. And that's what tokenization does. So what we can do is we can tokenize all the federal assets, put it into essentially one token. And then we would own this token that would provide us distributions. <coughs> so what that would actually allow people to do is it would allow Everyone, and the way I think is, you would be done by, you know, working with Adam Koshkesh, you would have to, anyone who had a social security number would essentially get this. And it's, it's not UBI. UBI is universal basic income. This is tokenized asset distributions. Now, why do I believe my model's a better model than UBI? Is because UBI is essentially an allowance. You know, so even with reparations, they're talking about Chicago. We want to give reparations or a UBI of $500 a month, right? But it's like everything you've spoken about earlier is, you know, 500, anything's better than nothing, people. So it's, you should do something anyway. But $500 a month tells a lot of people is going to help their life improve. It means they're going to be able to put food on the table. But it's not going to improve the cycle because they're always stuck there. They don't have rent. They don't have mm -hmm. asset ownership. Whereby if we have ownership of this fractionalized massive asset, which we essentially become that, then all your companies that are becoming billionaires and doing better, the better they do, the better we do. Because right. we're sort of tied into the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And then what will happen is it will create this opportunity for all these people who've missed out on asset ownership to own an asset for the first time. Now, it might be that you own this fractional ownership of this asset, which means the park, the hill, the mountains, the water, things like that. But for someone out there who's never owned an asset, and them to own an asset for the first time, the trajectory of their life can completely change. Correct. And yeah. then this is the this is what we're talking about. So when we talk about tokenization of federal assets as a replacement of UBI, really, if people start to think about it, the technology is now in place. Coinbase, I've spoken to them about it. The other company, Ledger, as well. They can create wallets for everyone based on social security. I actually spoke to the business development guy in Ledger about, you know, this policy when we start talking about it. And I said, you know, how long would it take us to set this up for everyone in America? And he goes, mm, three weeks. So three weeks. <laughs> We've already got it. You know, we'd have to get the branding right. We'd have to get everyone to come in. But we can set this up. We can provide distribution to people that way. And then they get distributions from this asset. And this is what tokenization can change. And then what you're talking about here with the blockchain as well, but you know, 
what you're doing with black blockchain consultants is you're, you're talking about ownership of asset. And this is where it's a reset for a lot of people. So when people are talking about owning, you know, I might be able to own my own house, but I only can own this fractional asset that gives me distributions. And even if it's a tiny amount, it has to change, you know, and this is where the AmeriCoin policy, because it's a bit like, you know, the Libertarian Party, everyone goes, oh, well, you know, I would say, you know, who's in that? The Tiger King, you know, it's just like, you know, but he won't join the Libertarian Party because I think most people mess, mess with the Libertarians in America. You know, you're either Democrat or you're Republican, you know, there's no one there. If people say Libertarian, that's a wasted vote. Well, I'm not allowed to own decision, you know. It's a wasted vote because it's like it doesn't count to anything. They've got two choices. But really, you know, if you look at the history of the Libertarian Party, the way they want to is, you know, you get to live your life any way you want. I get to live my life any way I want. And as long as we don't go out there and cause crime and damages and stuff like that, then we're happy to live this way in life, you know. And then because the Libertarian Party is like this small peripheral party, it's really just a party in policy. And the only policy they've really developed that's kept mainstream is the legalization of cannabis, which was started back by sort of two hippie lawyers in the Libertarian Party back in the 70s. You know, why is this stuff illegal? Can't do it. Another, yeah, I mean, again, we've seen the criminalization and again, how that impacts my community specifically. And then just how we've done a 180 and now it's a booming essential business. Uh, but there are over, you know, a million people plus in incarcerated for just possession of this. So we see how these all these things kind of come ebb and flow. And that's one of those things I think, again, the tokenization is a really interesting aspect to it. Because if we look at it as something that is it is tangible in the sense that we know that it exists not so much that we can touch it or feel it but that that it's something that we can call upon and validate at any point in time really kind of levels the, the playing field a bit because again we've had property ownership here that were passed down from other things but we get disenfranchised very quickly some lawyer just says yeah you, you don't own that no you don't and then some judge says yep you don't and then all of a sudden it's gone if we had those records in that way and that immutability of a blockchain system that also gives you the ability to say yeah this is mine and i can do what i need to do with it and that is that ownership is a really strong aspect um switching from consumerism which like i said we've always been that just here we've either paid our taxes, been a part of the system, but we don't really get to benefit from it. And I think this is specifically why the technology does change that a little bit. And that is said that compound, if I had something to give to my daughter, that she had something to give to her daughter would, would change the trajectory of my family in just a couple of generations. And I think that's the, the part that most people don't miss. It's like, yeah, you can work your whole life. But once you die, you're, it's done. You don't really give somebody your job. You don't give somebody something else like that. Whereas these tokenization aspects and these assets could last perpetually. They could be in there for, and again, be distributed in any way we see fit. And I think that's the strongest part uh, of the possibility of this technology. Yeah, and plus it increases in value. It's, and that's the thing that people need to do. It's like, you know, we we're talking about owning a house in the 19 post-Second World War. I was looking at some of the areas and there the houses then, they were buying the houses for like $2,300. And depending on some of the areas, they're worth $600,000 now. So they were getting a loan back then for essentially $1,800, you know? And it's this, basically, it's 70 years later, and it's passed down two generations, and this house is now worth $600,000. And that's an asset that's worth $600,000, and then they've pulled equity out to give to their family members to allow them to own assets as well. 
And I think, you know, and if you're just looking back to banking with my dad and stuff, it's just like, that's just something that's just quite unbelievable out there. And I think a lot of people out there, when they, they look at the Black Lives Matter movement and they look at things like that, and they think, oh, well, they've got equal rights now, everyone's equal. But if you think about the opportunity is, as you say, once you're in poverty and you've not got asset ownership to get out, because all these people that were there getting assets for the first time, you know, that was where the, a lot of the Irish immigrant community, uh, a lot of the Jewish community, essentially a lot of the people coming in getting assets there were second class citizens who were white at the time doing all the sort of work. And this is how the middle class created through asset ownership. But you can't go back and fix history. It's like, how do you fix things going forward? And it's and it's just, it's just to move forward with this. And I think tokenization of assets or the ability to give people in inner city areas, um, you know, 100% mortgages. You know, the way it looks at, and I saw someone else writing a, an article about it. He said, if, if someone paid rent on time for two years, there's no reason why that person can't be given a mortgage uh, to live in an area because they're proven to the fact that they can pay payments on time. Mm -hmm. It should be as simple as that. You know, they should change the rules because even with the FHA loans now coming out, you know, 3.5% down, but 3.5% down of a half a million dollar property, and we're not talking about, like, you're talking Pittsburgh. In San Francisco, it's like, you know, half a million dollars gets you a shoe cupboard. You know what I mean? It's just like two million dollars. It's like, oh, yeah, I've got, I've got a, I was speaking to one of my friends who from there. Yeah, she got a one bedroom apartment there and she used stayed there. It was like over a million dollars for a one bedroom apartment. Astronomical. And that's, that's it's, depending on where you want to live and the opportunities in those places. It, there's so much that goes into it. And I think that's the problem with it. It's, it's not going to be rectified overnight, but you have to make those kind of really succinct changes to really put things into perspective and it said yes you want to buy a home if that's what they really want to encourage you then you can't have these you know you can't charge me two million dollars for a two-bedroom house it's not going to work it just isn't and those are those kinds of things that we consider all the time but this is a, an economic problem and that i think that is something that affects all different communities because again we're interspersed to one another we're not just a segregated part like what happens to us if, if we benefit, everybody benefits. And that is something that we really need to move forward and think about how do we impact each other as, as perfectly as we can. Like I said, it's not going to be oh. you know, a utopia, but we have to get better because like I said, this will, this will impact us greatly. And for years to come, like I said, this, we're, we're still living, you know, the, the bad things that happened and they just keep on occurring. And so you're not getting well, you're just mitigating the problem. We have to really rectify a problem before we even move forward. Yeah, because it's just because you even think of, the, again, the closing costs and all your uh, yeah. fees and stuff like that. You know, you're suddenly as well, oh, well, we can give you a low rate loan, but you still need to get 35, 40,000 together. Mm -hmm. You know, and in today's cost of living back COVID, it's like, you know, how do you save $40,000? You know what I mean? For most people of a bus driver, how can they do that? It's just it's nearly impossible, you know, so it's. So it's like, how does this come back in terms of level playing fields? And, you know, the banking industry has a lot to answer for. And the banking industry, you know, they've, they've put the country in recession a couple of times with, the, you know, back in 2008 banking crisis. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's time like people at the banking industry need to take a, you know, a long, hard look at themselves and then start to see that, you know, we, we can provide 100% mortgages to people in inner city areas on affordable housing so they can actually get a chance to get in the property ladder. And it's like, it's not that, because the banking crisis never went down by giving 
you know, mortgages for people in low cost housing. There was so much more stuff that they were up to. You know what I mean? Send oh, right. debt to each other. We we yeah. understand. Like I said we are one of the the largest aspects again of the unbankable, and that becomes an issue too. If you don't have a bank, like you know, just the the pandemic showed that. Like if you have a business and if you wanted to get the PPE, you had to have a kind of a relationship with an established bank. What if you didn't have that? You're just struggling to get it. So there were all these kind of setup points and these obstacles that are always put in there. It's like, if I don't have a bank, you won't give me, let me be, uh, have an association with you, but then you tell me I can't. And then you tell me I can't get things because I don't have a relationship with you. It just compounds the, the whole problem. And that's, as I said, most people do not have banks. Um, and for that purpose, it's either you have to have your money in there, a large sum of money in there and the fees. So this is where banking really is being challenged, I think, by the by blockchain is that there's so much more that can be done. Uh, specifically, the digitization is one of those greatest things. I don't have a physical bank to go to and I haven't had that in almost 12 years. And I like that. <laughs> I really enjoy that, that I could bank online. Um, but that opens up the, the aspirate for everybody to be able to be able to have kind of an institution but also that some of that flexibility that truly the blockchain gives you, it gives you the security, all the things you need, but just in a lower, a lower price point and something that's much more flexible for you. And I think we'll see more and more of this. Uh, I think DeFi is an amazing, amazing aspect that could possibly, again, change the way we do things, because, again, we're not used to investing in that way. And if you can invest in a smaller amount of way in a fractional portion this also gives you the ability to, to own your way to ownership. And that's really an important part of our journey. Yeah, perfect. So, yeah, yeah. so, well, well thanks very much coming on there, Talisha. I think that's a, a great way for us to, to, to end the show. It sort of uh, veered off in a few directions like most of our shows. So, <laughs> but, but yeah, so thanks very much, Talisha. Um, uh, thank you for having me on the show today. Thank you. You have a great day. Okay, that's great. So, um, yeah, so thanks very much. Everybody in there has been watching Boom It's on the Blockchain. My name's Alistair Caithness. Thanks very much. Have a nice day. You want to make it to the top? you got to take risks along the way. Become big. You've got to think big. Zion. Smart planning. Smart software. Smart this. That's pretty bad. Perfect, Alicia. Awesome. So Great. that was good. So, yeah, I thought I'd just go into speaking about that stuff. It's all related anyway. It's good to speak about it from a, um, a banking perspective. You know, it's just yeah. for, for me growing up with that, you know, and I've, I've obviously had a lot of privileges because my dad's a bank manager, you know, so it's like I see all that. But to come to America and to see this stuff, it's just it's and I think most Americans don't actually even know it, you know. Again, that's that's amazing part of it. I, I'm my partner is British. So when I tell him certain things, he's always like, no, that just can't be. I'm like, yes, we live this way. And it's amazing because even when people here don't really understand that, it's almost like they're just blinded to that reality. But we do live in two different Americas. And I tell people all the time, like you, you're only seeing that small fraction. There's a whole bunch of people that are, are dealing with things that you have no idea. And like poverty is a very large um, 
it's just insidious because like I said, it's very hard. And I've watched my city go from a, a bustling town to really a, a destitute place that I always say, like I, I loved growing up in Pittsburgh um, on, on the outskirts, but it was like devastating to see it just go to pieces. And I'm like, I can't ever live there in that sense. Like I wish to go home, but I'm like, there's no home. My home is now different than what it ever would be beforehand. And I think that's a really strong part that people just don't really recognize, and especially like living in DC. DC is a really hard place. And you think, oh, it's the capital, but it's the devastation and the homelessness here is is amazing to see on a daily basis. Oh, it's the homelessness here as well. It's unbelievable. But you know, you go, you go to San Diego, you go down downtown, you can see it there and go up to LA. It's a, it's a really is unbelievable. And it's like, and then so many of them have got mental health problems as well. So it's, you know, and my wife, um, you know, my oldest boy, Malachi, he's autistic. So, you know, I was uh, chairman of Autism Speaks Walk here back 2018. So got to meet a lot of families. So I, I know I can recognize autism now because of what's, you know, basically I'm surrounded by it every day. There's been so many therapy sessions of therapists come to the house trying to help my son in so many ways. And then you, you just walked in the park and you just see that, you know, that person's on the spectrum, this person's on the spectrum. Right, you get to see it differently. And that's the difference with care, like my youngest brother, um, is 90% autistic. Yeah. He was diagnosed when he was two. So my mother has had him. But again, it's like, we're a middle-class family. My mother could stay home and take care of him and take him to all the special schools and do the on thing with him. And I'm thinking, what if that wasn't possible? What if he didn't have the mother to take yeah. care of him? And again, he's still at this point, he still needs 100% care. And my mother is 65 years old and he's 25. And that's a, a different, just a different way of growing up. And I think people don't have that. And then you see them like, oh, they're just outside. And I'm like, they need care. That's that's a whole different spectrum. Yeah. Like, oh, you're just homeless because you lost your job or, oh, you're home. They're homeless. Bad choices. People say, oh, well, it's just drugs, yeah. bad choices. It's alcohol. It's like, it's easy to just do say that. Because yeah. that makes you feel better about your driving past and your BMW. Oh, look at that person. They've done that. Everywhere you know? we live. Yeah, my daughter and I have lived in different cities. Like I said, we've lived uh, in San Diego. We live in Hawaii. And they have a strong, strong homeless community there. But I'm like, it's different being homeless in Hawaii than different being homeless in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and yeah. living under bridges and those kind of things. Like, you see the disparateness of it. And uh, it always was a really strong part. Like, that, that just that's hard to see and it's hard to even reconcile like what do you do my daughter is one of those kind of children she's like we have to do something and i'm like I, what do you want to do so she donates a lot of her time and energy to it but it's it's definitely hard yeah yeah because that, that was the whole thing with the coin when i start to speak to adam kokesh about it mm -hmm. and he goes you're completely changing my policy in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> but i just said but you know i see these people there I don't want them to be worthless anymore, you know? And I know that I can't fix everything, but if I can create a system where they're getting distributions of an asset and that person's no longer worthless. So right. because they're not worthless, uh, institutions and banking and finance and all these people, that person's worth something, we now want to work with you. Correct. And that's what and that's what it is. And that's the problem you, you see when we were talking about this earlier as well. It's just like, you can't have people just worthless. And that's why I want to change. And I feel that by even giving them little till fractional ownership. And then the thing is the big rich guys out there, you know, they don't want this idea because they're, they're getting wealthy 
of the owning the government's land and keeping all this there as well, all the wealthy politicians, all the wealthy people there as well, you would get the same Americoins as the homeless guy. The only difference is the homeless guy that Americoins will change his life for you, it'll buy a few sandwiches. You know? Exactly. <laughs> people don't recognize, I said, I come from a Southern family. And a lot of our disenfranchisement came with land. Um, my family is descendants from slaves, but at the same time, the owners that own my family gave them land. That was their retribution. So for them, he was like, when he died, he gave my ancestors the land. But a lot of people tried to take it from them and over the years have done unscrupulous things to get that land. And it was like, oh, you don't have the right document or, oh, this deed wasn't written. And it's amazing how you watch that disenfranchisement. And uh, as I go, my cousins and I have researched, you know, how much of the land was lost. And it's over 200 acres that we've lost over these years. And it's only been like, you know, I would say it was just a couple of decades. <laughs> and you're like, this has happened because people just didn't have record keeping. A lot of people were illiterate. My grandfather was illiterate because again, his grandfather, we have a grandfather clause in the United States where if your grandfather didn't vote or couldn't go to school, you couldn't go. So it just kept the perpetually again, poverty and those are the kind of things but he owned he was a coal miner and somebody gave him land when he came back from the war and um, they lost it because they were like oh you didn't pay the taxes and it's like this was tax-free land because the government gave it to him but it's always that thing like we're always fighting a system that really is trying to dupe us <laughs> and so you have to feel like you're always looking like what's the next thing how do i protect this how do i how do i make sure this is legitimate and that's why i think the blockchain gives me that like it gives me that it's here. It was written. Now we can't just, we we're not disputing this. I need something that makes it indisputable. And I think that's one of those things. And just ownership. Again, that's one of the things we yeah. don't have. We don't have ownership in anything. Yeah, I know because there's, I, I've seen a few of the, the different, because if you think about in Africa right now is when a new dictator comes in and there's a military coup, the dictator, mm -hmm. he comes and takes the land from the people. Right. So, so it's like you farm this land all your life. He comes and he just takes it. Yeah. And then he gives, yeah, and he just, yeah, and he just gives everyone a crappy job in government. Mm -hmm. it, it sort of takes as much wealth out of the country as possible. You know, sticks it in Panama, Dubai, Switzerland, <laughs> and then waits and for his the next guy to come in. And then, but the people there don't get it. And I think that's another thing with the blockchain. Exactly what you've said is this ability to say this person owns this little bit of land. And it doesn't matter when the next dictator comes in. And this is why I think the blockchain is going to get rid of dictators in places like Africa. And people think that's never going to happen. But it will because the UN, the UN will have this information and they'll say, well, we're not going to give you any money unless you this guy owns this piece of land. Mm -hmm. Now, you can't fix everything that's going back, but you can fix it going forward. Mm -hmm. So suddenly the dictator comes in and steals everyone's land. Well, it's on the blockchains and this farmer owns this little... 10 acres worth of land and he owns it and we're not giving you any money unless that happens that in fact we'll do sanctions against you and then there'll be an over uh, yeah. revolt there yeah. as well yeah. so yeah. it's accountability that the blockchain gives you is, is the good part because i always say we need somebody to advocate and information is the advocator it yeah. I proof that this is what it is like i don't owe you any money this is mine this has been mine we need that kind of check and balance and that accountability will forever change i think how systems work throughout the world. 
and yeah. really being disenfranchised, I think that's the biggest thing. I always tell people, yeah, there's a lot of money involved, but it's really about keeping what you have because we've gotten things over the years, but we are never able to keep it because we're purposely, you know, like I said, nefarious things are done to us. Or just like I said, sometimes it's just pure ignorance. You don't know what you have. And then somebody just who knows says, yeah, like right now, everybody's in the inner cities buying these wonderful homes and brownstones, but they have no idea what their houses are worth because they're like, oh, I just live here. And you're like, mm, that's a billion dollar plus house. And they're giving you $20,000. That's not how this works. <laughs> but they constantly are trying to, you know, they'll, they'll bug them and pester them. Just give us a house, give your house. And we're doing making commercial buildings and blah, blah, blah. And they're just, you know, they're this really, to me, that's stealing. You stole this person's whole ability to live their lives and the wealth of their families. And that's, that's has to and, and then it comes back to future generations thing. You know, it's another two, two generations later, it doesn't yeah. change again. You know, it's just, it, it's, and then, and then it comes back to education, you know? Exactly. And it's hard. It's a, we, we fight this battle all the time. Like I said, I know I'm 50 years old and, I have these conversations with people like my, my parents want to sell their home and I don't want to buy it, but I don't want to do this with my siblings. I'm like, you got to think about what you're doing. There is a setup that you just can't just, you know, go like my parents own a huge home in Pittsburgh. And my sister's like, well, I bought my own. And my brother's like, I don't want that house. And I'm like, I don't want to live in Pittsburgh either, but we got to keep that house. <laughs> like under no circumstances does that house leave our purview. I'm like, if we rent it, if we do something else, but that house is ours and we have to maintain it for however long we need to. Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely. So, yeah. so yeah, you could just talk about it all day. It's just like, it's it's just really is, a, it's, a, it's an unbelievable story that's come through and it's come to fruition now, but it's because I think, and it's coming because of so many reasons anyway, you know, information, education, but I think what the blockchain's giving is, as you said, it's given opportunity, you know? And it's just that opportunity now that people don't realize. And, you know, hopefully it'll just start to change. You know, it'll just be one of these things. But it's like anything. You just have to keep pushing it, pushing it, and pushing yeah. it. You have to have, you know, that's why we show up. <laughs> because they're like, people are like, oh, no, it's a scam. Oh, this Bitcoin thing is not real. It's like, it is. And I know. And we have to kind of overcome that. But that that's what we do every day. And that's why I'm, I'm grateful to have you, you know, to be on platforms like yours. Because talking about it, hearing about it over time, it legitimizes it for most people. And it's still hard. Like my mother's are like, I don't want a digital anything. Like she, she doesn't even want to use her cell phone, but I'm like, you're going to have to, I'm sending you Bitcoin. This is what you're going to have to do. She's like, I don't want that. I'm like, just keep it. You, you don't have to do anything. Just keep just it. Just keep it. You know, it'll be worth a lot of money. <laughs> it's worth a lot of money now. You have it. Just hold on to it. Don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. Wallet. Just don't yeah. lose the wall address. Yeah. Well, I have that. <laughs> I'm like, this is mine. Like, <laughs> her name. I'm like, I gave you a wallet. Don't worry about it. So it's just yeah. great that we get to have this time. So I thank you very much for the opportunity to have the conversation because I think it's worthwhile. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, that's been great then, Talisha. Okay. Thanks again. And then I'll, I'll, once I've edited it, I'll cut it up. I'll, I'll pop it on uh, YouTube, let you have a look at it and see if you're happy with it as well. And then we'll we'll get out from there. But there was some good stuff at the end as well. I think you might want to just cut into it as well. Okay. You have a great afternoon and a wonderful week. You, you too, Talisha. Nice to see you again. Bye-bye.